How do we interpret the Old Testament? Hello and welcome to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle. Our guest today is John Walton, Professor of Old Testament at Wheaton College and Graduate School in Illinois in the States. Previously, he was Professor of Old Testament at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. John's new book from IVP America is called Wisdom for Faithful Reading, Principles and Practices for Old Testament Interpretation. And he has distilled the experience of many years of teaching into this book. I thought it was fabulous. That's just my opinion. But let's talk to him now. John, hi, welcome. Hi, Brent. Very good to be here and chatting with you. Oh, sir, it's a pleasure to have you with us. I mean, it really is. Now, what sort of problems do people, I include myself, have understanding the Old Testament? I think the main problem that people have is that they don't know what to do with it. They say, well, this is God's word. It's scripture. It's authoritative. It's inspired. What do I do with it? (laughs) Because they open it up and start reading the pages. They read through their Bible in a year program. They get to the third week in February and hit Leviticus and it's all over. (laughs) So I think that's the main problem. They don't know what to do with it. They revere it. They want to honor it, but they don't know how. Personally, I think Leviticus is fantastic. I mean, where could you go wrong with with all that? I mean, it's... it's... (laughs) There's some great stuff in it. I mean, you write about the importance of church community. Um, Why do we need the church community when we're trying to come to an understanding of Scripture? Well, I think because none of us has everything needed to interpret wisely and faithfully. Any of us uh, has simply limited ability to make all the observations and to know all the information to kind of do it all on my own. So I look to people in my church, to students in my classes, to make observations that I wouldn't have thought to make. They ask questions that I wouldn't have thought to ask. And sometimes I've gone decades not asking certain questions and suddenly a student raises it and I say, why didn't I ever ask that? I've had it happen with sixth graders. So I think it's very important to to recognize how the community works together to do interpretation. That doesn't mean that everyone contributes the same things to the conversation. Certainly with certain expertise that different people have, they can contribute different things. But still, exegesis, interpretation, starts with observation and questions. And we can all be involved in that process. Why is context everything? I mean, I think you write somewhere that context is I've written down everything. I don't want to put words into your mouth. But why why is context important in our understanding of the Old Testament? Well, we understand this to be the case anytime we communicate. Uh, We understand that a newspaper reporter can't just grab a sentence or a couple words from a politician and turn it into something that means something differently. We've all had the experience, I'm sure, where we were talking to someone and they said, oh, so you mean this? And you say, no, 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 I don't mean that at all. Um, Put that in the larger context. Uh, We all understand that if we don't have context to help guide the communicative process, that things can go easily awry. And that's true with interpretation of scripture as well. What are some of your principles for faithful interpretation? I mean, I think you've got five in the book. Um, I'm hesitant to ask you in case you can't remember all five, but (laughs) what are some of them? I have the book in front of me here. There we go. So so that makes it a little bit easier uh, because there are lots of different things that I raise in the book. But 
the the five that I identify in that portion of the book, first of all, the idea that the author's message matters, that in fact, that's where authority is. And therefore, we have to pay attention to what the author intended to communicate. And, and there, of course, I'm not talking about the idea that we're reading his mind or something like that. I, I come to the Bible assuming that the authors are competent and effective communicators. And if they are, and especially if God has helped them do that, I tend to think that that the meaning can be discerned, though sometimes it takes some extra background. So I think that's one of the first principles that our attention is on the author. Secondly, we understand that language and culture are part of the author's communication. And therefore, if we want to get the full thrust of his communication, we need to try to tap into the language and culture a little bit. And that's the nature of how we read scripture. And we want to read it that way because we want to be accountable. See, that's the thing with authority that lots of people don't seem to recognize. They say the Bible has authority. And then they go saying, and so to me, I think it means this. You say, wait a minute. It seems to me that you're not submitting to what the text is saying. You're freelancing on what you want to say. But the fact is, if the text has authority, then we submit to it and are accountable to it. We can't just take flights of imagination or have an inspirational moment. Hmm. So those are some of the important ones. Um, the idea that when we interpret, uh, we we use evidence. I talk about in the book the idea that lots of people seem to think that their interpretation comes from the Holy Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit doesn't help you know Hebrew words or to analyze them, and that's a necessary part of interpretation. The Holy Spirit doesn't help you know about the ancient world context. There are things the Holy Spirit does that are very important, but for interpretation, we need to develop evidence. And if we don't have evidence, we can't just punt and say, oh, well, I can't prove this, but the Holy Spirit told me it means this. That's a conversation ender, and it can't be falsified, and it can't be verified, and people throughout the history of the church have done horrible things with that kind of idea. So those are some of the principles that, that I use. Yes. Um, I mean, you write that a text cannot mean what it never meant. I love that phrase. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Well, and, you know, credit does credits do. I footnoted that one uh, because I got that from Gordon Fee and Doug Stewart's book, uh, which had uh, was lots of the early influence on me as a as an interpreter. So there may be other things I got from them, too, but that one I could footnote. <laughs> And that basically means that the authors, as they wrote, had had purposes. They meant something. And what they meant is what has authority because God worked through them. And therefore, what they meant can't be turned into something else that we mean, because then it doesn't have authority anymore. Certainly, we can take see application taking different directions. But interpretation can't take different directions because it's rooted in the text and the author's intentions as reflected in the text. I talk about it, not in the book, um, although I might've used the word, I, I talk about it as tethering, that I'm tethered to, to the text, to the author's intentions, They're tied tight. And I can't, I can't extend beyond that. And that, that tether, that rope is based on evidence and it represents authority. 
And that's my tethering. Too often in the church, I think instead of being tethered and treating the, the text as a tethering post, then we treat the text as a launching pad. <laughs> and we launch into imaginative, inspirational thoughts. Inspirational thoughts are good, but if it's not the text inspirational thoughts, it's not the authority of the Bible. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Now, in what sense then is the Bible inspired and inerrant? Well, the, the Bible, we believe, and I think what Paul's saying, uh, when we say it's inspired, we mean that it has its source in God. Plain and simple, he worked through human instruments, but he had it has, it has its source in God. And that makes a difference to us, because that means we don't want to cut ourselves off from that source. And of course, we connect to that source by connecting to the authors. When we talk about it as inerrant, now you're in a different category, because inspiration talks about source, inerrancy talks about meaning. Okay, so those who claim inerrancy, and I do, uh, talk about the text as inerrant in all that it affirms. But how do you know what it affirms until you've interpreted it? And so we have this tricky little uh, algorithm involved here of how we go about interpretation. We can say, oh, the text demands this, and that's inerrant. And one of my first questions would be, show me your evidence that the text demands that. Okay, so inerrancy basically gets at the issue of truth, because it's what the text is affirming, and it gets at the issue of truth. But again, we've got that tricky stage where we've got to do interpretation, and different people have different opinions about what it affirms. One of the uh, m most fascinating parts of your book was when you wrote about history, and um, really about ancient history and how it was written, and it was written very differently to the way we think of history or how we think history should be written. How, how I wonder did ancient writers, and I suppose by extension biblical writers, write history? What were their aims? Yeah, well, one of the things that I talked about was that uh, one of our problems with dealing with this kind of literature is the word history. Because what we mean by history, that is, as we think about the past, how we understand the past, how we write about the past, what we remember about the past, right? We all call it, we call that all history. And the fact is history is viewed different ways by different cultures. So one of the things I pushed for is that we have to be very careful using a term like history because we may have a problem with different definitions. So when I talk about Israel in the ancient world, I wanna know how did they think about the past? What did they think was important about the past? How did they remember the past? And how did they write about it? And those things I find are very different in the ancient world than they would be today. So it's not an easy question for us to just ask, oh, is this history? Well, it talks about the past, but different people do that different ways. So what Israel in the Bible talks to us about in the past, we have to understand their perspectives on that. Uh, anyone who writes about the past is interpreting the past, and they interpret it through their own lenses of how they think the past should be understood. Most people who write about the past, even today, will tend to see trends or patterns, and they'll organize history in that way. We talk about the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages or the Byzantine period or the Iron Age or whatever it might be. 
And we've already done some patterning. We've already done some categories that we have imposed on the past. The other thing that's interesting is that most people who write about the past are doing so to try to understand the present and to try to shape the future. And in the ancient world, it was no different. But again, they had very different ideas about how to interpret the past in relationship to the present. So in this area, we have to become more nuanced uh, and willing to put our own presuppositions and our defaults and our common uh, ideas a little bit to the side and try to understand how they talked about them. Yes. Now, how close do our translations actually get to the biblical Hebrew. Now, my co-host, Rito, who's not able to be with us this morning, he has Hebrew. He learned it. I didn't. Greek was enough for me to contend with at theological college. <laughs> cope with both languages, but Rito can. Um, how close do our translations get to the biblical Hebrew, and how close can they get? In many, many, many places, a high percentage of places, they get very close, and there's no reason really to have red flags, you know, problems raised. But then there's the rest of those places. And often they're in very important passages or very complicated passages. And we run into this problem of translation. Uh, the, the line I had in the book was that all translation is interpretation. And nobody would disagree with that. You have to determine what the meaning of the text is before you can put that meaning in another language. And that means you're interpreting. But beyond the problem of interpretation, which we all face, every translator faces it, and they would all admit it. I mean, this is not this is not <laughs> um, new ideas, you know. But the, the other problem, which is a little bit more subtle, uh, is the problem that exists just between languages and how they package ideas. Languages don't package ideas in the same way. And they might have something that's, in a sense, the very same word, but they think about those things differently. Again, I just mentioned history. You can talk about history in the ancient world and history today, and you say, oh, they're the same thing. But no, they're not really. There are different meanings behind those. But it, it even goes beyond that, because what happens is that there are any number of words in Hebrew that we just don't have an English word for. And therefore, no matter what English word we choose, it's going to be a little bit of a distortion because we just don't have an English word. And uh, that's true in any exchange between languages. There are always going to be words that one language has that the other language doesn't. And so that creates a problem with translation because then whatever word we put on the page, people, if they're just going to work with the English word, are not going to quite understand what's going on in the Hebrew text. Mm. Yes. So, I mean, I suppose reading with interlinear is helpful for folk who don't have Hebrew. Is it? Well... It can be a false crutch, because again, if if you've got an interlinear, it's assigning a one-to-one -one correspondence mm. between a Hebrew word and an English word. Yeah. And if we don't have an English word, that's not helping you. It may give you a confidence that you don't deserve to have. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. I'm just thinking of is it hesed, that word that is we find translated as. I remember having a, 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 a heated discussion with a friend of mine who was didn't like the uh, loving kindness translation and thought it should have been translated mercy, but I think am I correct in thinking that both 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 meanings can uh, it can include both meanings both senses and many sure. more probably yeah. When we talk about languages and translations, 
if, if you and your audience will indulge me for a moment. Sure. One of the distinctions we make is between what's called contextual sense and lexical sense. Lexical sense, the word has with it everywhere it goes. Contextual sense means that there are more specific additional nuances that can be that the word can be used in those contexts, but the context has to help define it. Think about something like creation out of nothing. Okay, the Hebrew word for create can be used in a context where it's creation out of nothing, but there are plenty of other places where it's used that it doesn't mean that. That means the creation out of nothing is part of a contextual sense, and the context has to tell you that that's what it means. Lexical sense uh, doesn't have that in it. The analogy I use is that lexical sense is like your bones. You take it everywhere you go. Contextual sense is like your clothes. You may change them, but it doesn't change your bones. Yeah. Okay. So those are things we have to think about when we use something like chesed. You know, certainly in some contexts, it could be something like loving kindness or mercy or love or kindness or any number of other things, loyalty. Those are all possible contextual senses, but none of them get to the lexical sense of the word. What's it? What's in its bones? And we don't have an English word for what's in its bones. Yeah. yeah. So we're, we're stuck with contextual senses. But again, that can that can present difficulties. I love that expression. What's in the words bones? I, I shall remember that. That's fabulous. Yeah. <laughs> Talking about the creation account, I mean, you've written, um, Rito said, ask him about creation. Ask him about creation. He's written some great <laughs> stuff on it. So uh, here we go. How does the creation account function in the book of Genesis then and indeed in the whole Bible? Well, to that, you have to go back to the ancient world. You're not surprised to have me say that. Um, we have to ask not what we think about when we think about creation. What do they think about when they think about creation? So that takes a little work because you have to try to get back into, you know, again, what are the bones of that word? What does it what does it get at? Yeah, I like that. Anyway, uh, so, so I. Yeah. As, as best as I understand it. And again, always that qualifier. We're all all on a journey trying to figure stuff out. Um, in the ancient world, the most important value that they have as far as I can determine, is order. Order is a high value, and they seek it through every aspect of life, whether it's order in society or order in uh, terms of how society is regulated, like with law, uh, order in how they, went, how they understand history, uh, order as they understand kingship and its role, order in the temples and the rituals that establish order, and of course, order in creation. For them, the most important act of creation is when God brings about order. That's at the heart, that's the bones of the creative act. And so when they talk about creation, that's what they're going to get discussion of. When we think about creation, the bones of the word is material. It's a material kind of thing. Uh, and as far as I can tell, they don't think that way. So when they talk about creation, they're trying to talk about God establishing order. And of course, that fits with everything through the Bible. If order is the, the value, wisdom, for instance, is the pathway to order. And the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So you fear God, beginning of wisdom leads you to order. Torah is all about ordering Israelite society um, to be living in the presence of God and enhancing his reputation. Um, the when God creates people in his own image, they have become image bearers. And that means 
that they are order bringers. And so they're supposed to be bringing order alongside him, subdue and rule. In chapter three, they decide that they would rather bring order centered around themselves instead of centered around God. Chapter three is not about disobedience and sin, although you could argue that both of those are involved. It's not so much that they disobeyed and that they took. It's that it's what they took. <laughs> they took the pathway to wisdom that would lead to order on their own terms. And that's the history of humanity. I want to do it myself. I want to get the benefit. I want to do it my way. I'm not content to do it God's way. And so we find that this sets up this whole idea of humans turning in on themselves. That was Augustine, I think. Uh, turning in on themselves uh, as they as they pursue their own path. And so creation sets up this whole history. And of course, God finally produces his own pathway to order, and that's the covenant. And the Torah defines how order will take place within the covenant. And that order is connected to God's presence, which is the source of order and the center of order. So all of these hinge together. And of course, you can even turn to Colossians if you want and talk about Jesus in whom all things cohere, all order coheres in him. So anyway, that's that's how I would see those things coming together. Mm. Mention of the Lord Jesus. Let's let's deal with that because this was one of the, the, the most interesting parts of your book for me and one I, um, I, I really enjoyed. I chewed over it for quite a while. In what sense does the Old Testament drive us to Jesus? Okay, so... God has established order, and people are doing their own order, but yet God is still doing order his way, despite the fact that people have determined to do it their way. So God is working out his plans and purposes in history, in time, uh, in experiences. God is working out his plans and purposes. And you saw that's kind of a big phrase that I use often in the book. Okay, so that's what God is doing. Um, and those plans and purposes have to do with being in relationship with people and dwelling among people. Those are the two big ideas. So in that sense, if God is working out these plans and purposes to be in relationship with people and dwell among them, then you've got to see how eventually it's going to lead to Jesus. Jesus, first of all, as the incarnation, and then God with us, Emmanuel, God with us. And Jesus providing a means for relationship through his death and resurrection. In that way, if the Old Testament is all about God's plans and purposes for relationship and presence, it must, of its very nature, be driving toward Jesus. Yes. Well, interesting. But you, uh, coming on to the, the subject of typology, because you, you write about typology in the book, and I, I don't want to put words into your mouth, and I didn't write it down, so I can't quite remember exactly what it was you said. But you, talk, you wrote about Noah's Ark, and I think the feeling was that I felt you might be a bit uncomfortable about me saying, Jesus is our new Noah's Ark. I well, in another sense, you wouldn't be, I don't think. Well, I would be uncomfortable with it because... Um, going back to the beginning of our conversation, I, I want to be tethered. That is, I want to be talking along with the author, tracking with the author, tethered to the author. And therefore, if I'm going to say Jesus is our new Noah's Ark, I want to see the author saying it. If the author's not saying it, I don't feel comfortable saying it. Now, 
If a New Testament author came along and said something like that, then it's on the authority of the insight of the New Testament author that I could affirm that insight. But even then, that doesn't mean the New Testament author is trying to tell you what Genesis author was talking about. Okay, we have to assess Genesis in Genesis. Okay, so in that sense, much of typology, much of the things that we do with Jesus in the Old Testament aren't tethered. They're not tracking with the author. And if the authority comes by tracking with the author, then whatever you do, even if it's connected to something wonderful like Jesus, if you're not tracking with the author, you are not following authority. Now, again, if a New Testament author connects the dots, then you're tracking with the New Testament author, and that's great. But if we're doing our own thing, we no longer have a tethering post, we have a launching pad. And yeah. so to me, it comes back to authority. Now, so the text can be driving us toward Jesus because we've got these plans and purposes, relationship and presence. So, of course, it's driving us toward Jesus. That doesn't allow me to read Jesus as the stone that, jo that Jacob slept on or the coat that Joseph wore or this or that, Noah's Ark. It doesn't allow me to do that because those are imagination for an inspirational thought. I don't want to know what the five stones in your bag are when you go to slay the giants in your life. There's no tethering there to track with the author. That becomes an inspirational thought. Inspirational thoughts are great. But if you're making a choice between inspirational thought and authority, I want the authority. And if yeah, you're yeah. giving the inspirational oh. thoughts as if yeah. they are authority, then something's wrong here in the equation. Yep. No, fair enough. I, I read that book with interest. I took note. <laughs> I shan't do it again. Well, I might actually, but uh, I mean, it's a, we spend. A, I spent a great deal of time in my theological degree um, studying biblical theology, and uh, I had a wonderful teacher in in Sydney, and uh, he was. I was always asking him questions about like that. But anyway, there we are. I think his his answer might have been different to yours, but that's fine. Hey, that's what it's all about, isn't it? I suppose. Absolutely. Uh, different people are going to formulate their hermeneutic differently. Mm. And if they can defend it as something that can be used consistently within controls, I'm fine with that. Okay. But what I encourage everybody to do in the book is you need to examine your hermeneutic to figure out how it's working. Don't just float along with things that you've always done and you like the results. Uh, you've got to examine your hermeneutic. Yep. We don't want an unexamined hermeneutic. No, very good. Yes, no. Excellent. Last question. Uh, I think we're just about out of time, but I've got to ask you this question. You write that our task is to find our place in God's story. Nothing to do with the title of the podcast, of course. How do we go about <laughs> doing that? How do we find our, our place in God's story? Uh, I think it has to do with coming to an understanding of God's plans and purposes. That is his story, at least the story that he's given us. He's given us the story of how he's working out his plans and purposes. And so what we're supposed to do is figure out how we live up to the title of image bearers and order bringers, find our place in his story as participants, co-laborers, stewards, working alongside of him as he designed it to be, working toward his plans and purposes, not ours. Your will be done, not mine, right? Uh, your kingdom come, not mine. So we find our place in his story 
by understanding his plans and purposes and joining him in doing that. Mm, very good. John Walton, Professor of Old Testament at Wheaton College and Graduate School in Illinois in the States. The book from IVP into Varsity Press America is called Wisdom for Faithful Reading, Principles and Practices for Old Testament Interpretation. It kept, there it is. He's showing it on screen. Listeners, it's, it's an audio-only podcast, so they can't see it. But you, you get hold of a copy because it is, and it's challenged me, and I've, I've learned heaps from it, and I'll go back to it, and I will chew over what you've said, John. <laughs> Very good. Thank you, Grant. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes. John, thank you so much. You're quite welcome. Glad to have the conversation. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.